You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, Brendan, M.D., Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Toves, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I recently got my hands on a book. The publishing house PM Press sent me over a copy for free, for, you know, consideration, which I love. Now, I'm not getting paid or anything, but the book was interesting, and it raised some questions that I'd like to discuss today. The book in question is Life Under the Jolly Roger, Reflections on the Golden Age of Piracy, by Gabriel Kuhn. Now, it's unapologetically written from a radical perspective. Gabriel Kuhn is an anarchist philosopher, and P.M. Press specializes in radical books. I was curious as to how I would feel about this book. I wondered, well, I've read a lot of books about piracy, books from all kinds of different perspectives, and I've seen a lot of them that were full of bias, or more commonly that we're trying to fit the story of pirates into a modern narrative. I can't tell you how many interesting-sounding books I've had to basically toss out because I couldn't take them seriously. But to my delight, this book, Life Under the Jolly Roger, was neither of those things. The author writes with a perspective. He acknowledges that going in. He's upfront about it. For example, he writes in the introduction... Quote, an important aspect of this venture is the desire to go beyond a certain antagonism that seems to have developed over the last decade with respect to the political interpretation of the golden age of piracy. On the one hand, there are scholars who insist that the real world of the pirates was harsh, tough, and cruel, and that the pirates acquired a romantic aura, which they certainly never deserved. On the other hand, there are those who maintain that these outlaws led audacious, rebellious lives, and that we should remember them as long as there are powerful people and oppressive circumstances to be resisted. 
The ideological assumptions behind these two perspectives are as clear as their respective consequences. While for the adherents of the former, pirates tend to get a better press than they deserve, often being admired for their laid-back lifestyle and praised as proto-revolutionaries or democrats, rather than condemned as the murderers and thieves that most of them were. The adherents of the latter embrace Marcus Redeker's perception that pirates were rebels who challenged in one way or another the conventions of class, race, gender, and nation, expressed high ideals, and abolished the wage, established a different discipline, practiced their own kind of democracy and equality, and provided an alternative model for running the deep-sea ship. In the end, both sides accuse the other of substituting fiction for fact. And then he concludes, Although this book is written from a radical perspective, I will try to avoid this debate for several reasons. End quote. And then he goes on to give those reasons, all of which seemed pretty reasonable to me. Mostly, it's given the lack of reputable primary sources, and of course the subsequent romanticization of pirates. It's not a debate that can be decided or really honestly argued. Instead, what we have here is an author that's looking at the golden age of piracy honestly and drawing conclusions that are applicable to today's world. I, I respect that, even when I don't necessarily agree with the conclusions that the author comes up with. But they're not rewriting history. Instead, they're trying to learn from it. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've run into either sources or occasionally real people who have tried to tell me how pirate ideology fits in perfectly with their modern ideology. And it's always an extreme, right? They're always either A, trying to push an ethno-state, or B, trying to push the abolition of the state. This book doesn't do that. I found it to be a really worthwhile read especially if you're a person that has an interest in political science or radical politics or an innovative take on pirate historiography. It's fascinating. Also, there's a ton of stuff in it about marginalized people, women, racial minorities, people with handicaps, that kind of thing, that rarely get talked about properly in other pirate sources. Plus, and this is a big one for me, it's really well written. So, you know... If it sounds like something you're interested in, I suggest you check it out. With that said, I'm not going to say much more about Life Under the Jolly Roger. I don't want to, you know, just give everything away. It is a worthwhile read, and I want to be able to fold it into my sources to make me sound smart. But it does raise some questions that I would like to discuss today. I want to look at some of the radical or even revolutionary ideologies that have been attributed to pirates. So often I hear people say that pirates were proto-capitalists, or pirates were proto-socialists, or pirates were proto-republicans, or pirates were anarchists. I hear all of these, and today we're going to begin to examine those claims. This is episode 183, Outlaw Brotherhood. There are a few points I'd like to note right out of the gate. First, nearly everything today we're going to talk about is going to be based in the Western tradition, more specifically the European tradition. 
You know, the pirates that we talk about on this show, with the exception of a brief digression into Barbary piracy, have all been operating in or subject to the European sphere of influence. Now, they haven't all been European, of course. There have been pirates from native peoples like the Kuna and the Mosquito. And, of course, there have been pirates of African heritage. Peter T. Leeson writes in his excellent article entitled Anarchy. Quote, A sample of 700 pirates active in the Caribbean between 1715 and 1725, for example, reveals that 35% were English, 25% were American, 20% were West Indian, 10% were Scottish, 8% were Welsh, and 2% were Swedish, Dutch, French, and Spanish. Others came from Portugal, Scandinavia, Greece, and East India. Pirate crews were also racially diverse. Based on data available from 23 pirate crews active between 1682 and 1726, the racial composition of ships varied between 13 and 98% black. If this sample is representative, 25 to 30% of the average pirate crew was of African descent. End quote. Now I'm going to just skip over the unbelievable audacity of Leeson in using that title. Anarchy. At least, you know, doing so before I could. But all of those pirates he was mentioning, be they Greek or Scottish or of African descent, they were all operating in a colonial world. A world that was built by Europeans, and often, in the case of those of African descent, it was to their sorrow. But in that vein, the ideas we're going to be talking about today are going to be the European version of ideas and philosophies that were mostly based in Western thought. I suppose, though, to begin, we should take a look at those philosophies, but with, you know, the broadest possible brush. And when I talk about these philosophies, I'm going to be talking about the very early versions of them. These are not their modern counterparts we're talking about. They are living and evolving ideas that impact our real world right now, today. But their relevance to Golden Age pirates, if in fact there is any at all, I would argue comes from the closest chronological versions of the ideas. The first of these I would like to note, the closest to the Golden Age of piracy, chronologically speaking, is capitalism. Now, if you don't consider capitalism a revolutionary ideology, I would point you to the year 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. However, we're not going to be spending a lot of time on capitalism today, mostly because the birth of capitalism and topics like the Protestant work ethic are kind of a background theme all throughout the entire era of piracy. Recall our talk about mercantilism? That system popular in the early modern era in which the state was the controlling interest in all agricultural and industrial and financial business interests, in which all capital, by default, belonged to the state and was doled out to its people as the state saw fit. Well, the basic tenet of capitalism is the belief that agricultural and industrial interests, what Karl Marx would go on to call the means of production, should be owned not by the state, but by private owners. 
And in our story, in the world of the pirates, we're beginning to see this shift already, especially in Protestant nations like England and the Netherlands. We have private merchant shipping and private Puritan colonial businesses. Mercantilism was still alive and well at the time, but smaller concerns were taking shape. The basic idea here is that farmers could own their own farms and enjoy the profits of their labor. Manufacturers, who were mostly, at the time, small artisans, you know, think like cobblers, well, they could own their own shops outside of the restrictive guild system and enjoy the profits of their labor. Sounds great, right? Well, problems naturally arose. Instead of small farmers enjoying the profits of their own labor, we have giant plantation owners enjoying the profits of the labor of thousands of slaves. Instead of artisans making and selling shoes and enjoying the profits of their own labor, you have factories with a division of labor and owners enjoying the profits of thousands of employees. What certain ideologies we're going to talk about today would call wage slaves. But I hear you saying, hey, hey, hey now, I'm an employee. It's not some disgusting, exploitative system. I hear some of you saying the opposite, and I'm not going to argue aside, but a lot of people would disagree with that. We're at right about 1800 here, and by that point the shortcomings of capitalism were becoming apparent to pretty much everybody. And you know it's not some kind of radical left thing. There were people working 18-hour days, six, seven days a week, still unable to feed their families. It was a problem everybody recognized, but the question on everybody's mind was... How do we solve it? And there were two schools of thought here. On the one hand, you could regulate and legislate the problem away. That's what we here in the Anglosphere did. In fact, that's what most places that had some sort of representative government did. It's the natural step to take in a republic, for example. But it is an imperfect system. It takes time to legislate and regulate. And the results are often less than what were hoped for. However, on the other side of that coin, you have places like France, 1793. But they started out fighting for those rights. You know, they had the Declaration of the Rights of Man. They had the establishment of a legislature. They had a constitution. All things that most people in the modern world can get behind. But then you have the Reign of Terror. You have the guillotine. You have the absolute death of the rule of law. It turned into a real mess. Now, we're not here to delve into the story of the French Revolution or debate the merits of the revolution. But it was in the chaos of the revolution that two ideals were either given birth or given form. Socialism and anarchism. Socialism came first. And the basic tenet of socialism is the belief that agricultural and industrial interests, what Karl Marx would call the means of production, should be owned not by the state, but by the workers. Not single private owners with employees, but all of the workers coming together to collectively own the industry that they operate. That's the need to seize the means of production, right? And that means just what it sounds like. The means of production are the tools and the raw materials and the factories and everything needed to produce goods. 
and that claim, you need to seize the means of production, was not some philosophical ideal. It was a literal call to arms in the moment, right now. That's Karl Marx saying, hey, you, if you hate your job and you want to quit getting screwed by your boss, you need to take his factory over by force. Only then, according to Marx, can the people in the farms and the factories really begin to enjoy the profits of their labor. Because this solution, this socialist solution, was attempting to solve the same problems that capitalism was attempting to solve. However, problems naturally arose. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Instead of the people, the proletariat, enjoying the profits of their own labor, you have the state, who claimed to represent the people, but they controlled all of the profits of all of the labor, and they redistributed it as they saw fit. Which sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? When you break down the Soviet Union, it starts to look quite a bit like a mercantilist state. Imperial expansion? Check. Slave labor? check. State-controlled industry and economy? Check and double-check. Theocratic absolute monarchs destined by God himself to rule? Well, okay, lots of that stuff. But that brings us, finally, to the third solution to these issues that we're going to talk about today. It's the political and financial system that is most often associated with pirates. When I started this show, a friend of mine asked me, Aren't pirates really just drunken anarchists? And at the time, I said yes. However, now, after a lot of reading and a lot of thought, I would say, well, yes, but also no. So what is anarchism? And to be fair, I'm really not the person to answer this question. To be honest, I've really never understood anarchism, but I've, I've tried. At its root, you know, the dictionary definition, 
Anarchism is a system in which the people live under no government. The word anarchism is based in the Greek. If a monarchy is the rule of one, a mono, and an oligarchy is the rule of a few, anarchy is the rule of none. But that's barely even beginning to scratch the surface. Anarchism means a world in which the state itself doesn't exist. Beyond that, it's a world in which structures of power and hierarchy and coercion are all just abolished. And what that means, practically speaking, really begins to depend on who you ask. The end result is supposed to be a world in which all people are free and equal. And that sounds great, right? But I've yet to find any kind of practical roadmap to that utopian end from any source. I would be remiss in discussing early anarchism, even in the broadest and likely inaccurate possible terms, if I did not mention, though, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Proudhon was a French philosopher. He was born in the wake of the French Revolution. But Proudhon played a large role in the revolutions of 1848. The statement, the idea that, quote, property is theft, was from Proudhon's pen. Now, he was a socialist at first, a contemporary of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. He knew them. They were, for a time, friends. But his plans for a socialist world seem to have been mostly based on worker collectives and communal living, which flew in the face of what Marx and Engels were talking about. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, realizing that there was a divide between himself and the rest of the socialist movement, declared himself an anarchist maybe the first official anarchist. But after his death, the theory of anarchism began to splinter into dozens of different varieties of anarchism. You've got, you know, anarcho-communism and libertarian socialism, and there are just far too many to even begin to name. I think, and those that are better versed in modern anarchist theory might scream to the heavens about how wrong I am, but it seems to me that the closest modern corollary to Proudhon's anarchic ideas is anarcho-syndicalism. Again, I'm not sure, and I'm not going to dig myself any deeper here. But all of this, now that we understand essentially the history of the world from, say, 1786 to, you know, yesterday, brings us to the question at hand. Are pirates capitalists? Are pirates Socialists are pirates anarchists. Well, yes, but also no. If we look at the socio-economic ideas discussed here today, we would find elements of all three in pirates and piracy. But the real innovation that pirates offered the world is one that we have not yet talked about, at least today. Pirate ships and the pirate world were democratic. They voted on everything. That form of governance could, and I would argue should, be the basis for every type of societal arrangement. You know, I believe in the will of the people, be it large, sprawling nation-states or city-states or small communal living, I think the people should choose how to run their lives. I don't care if you're capitalist or communist or anarchist or whatever, I believe in voting as a way of making the big decisions. 
So instead of looking at all of those forms of organization and trying to fit the pirates into that mold, I want to look at some typical pirate activities and see what latter-day philosophies may or may not apply. Let's begin at the beginning, before a pirate crew even sets out for their voyage. Marcus Redeker writes in Villains of All Nations, quote, In their founding moment, after a mutiny or when the crew of an overcrowded vessel split and formed a new pirate ship, the crew came together to elect their captain, draw up their articles, and declare to be true to each other and their flag. End quote. But of course pirates voted on more than just the captain. The quartermaster was perhaps the most important officer on board a pirate ship, as far as, you know, the crew was concerned. Captain Charles Johnson in A General History of the Pirates writes, quote, We may say the quartermaster is a humble imitation of the Roman tribune of the people. He speaks for and looks after the interest of the crew. End quote. But what I want to talk about here are the Articles of Agreement. The Pirate Code. Those codes were really a defining characteristic of what made pirates pirates. Now, Alexander Exquimelin tells us of the buccaneer codes of the Brethren of the Coast, Henry Morgan especially. Article 2 of Henry Morgan's Code says, quote, Compensation is provided the captain for the use of his ship, and the salary of the carpenter, or shipwright, who mended, careened, and rigged the vessel. End quote. Jean Charpin's code, which we only just talked about, opens, quote, Copy of charter made between M. Charpin, commanding the Saint-Rose, and his crew, who agreed to give him ten lots for himself and command of his ship. End quote. That's twice in the Buccaneer era that we see extra shares allotted for the use of his ship. That denotes, of course, the ownership of the vessel. That's private property, private property for which the private owner is to be compensated. That is a capitalistic virtue if ever I heard one. Henry Morgan's Code even makes an allotment for the captain to receive extra shares so he can pay a salary? But those are buccaneer coats. What about, you know, real pirates? Well, perhaps the most famous pirate code of all time, that of Black Bart Roberts. It reads, quote, The captain and quartermaster to receive two shares of a prize, the master, boatswain, and gunner one share and a half, and other officers one and quarter. End quote. That's a lot closer to equal than the ten shares of the buccaneers. There's... No mention of ownership anywhere in his articles or any of the other Latter-day Pirates. That's bringing us more and more into a, what we might consider today, a socialist organization. Perhaps most telling to me, though, was the advent of pirate councils. Now, we haven't talked much about the pirate council here on this show, not yet at least. Mostly because they weren't really a thing for the buccaneers, but they're going to become more and more important as we move on. Those councils are going to be elected by the crew to debate and decide issues alongside the captain and the quartermaster, and really they're just as important an office as captain and quartermaster. 
There are a lot of possible comparisons we could make between these councils on board a pirate ship and modern-day political structures. But what it really makes me think of are workers' councils so popular in the Soviet Union. That's where the Soviet Union got their name, even. Workers' councils were called Soviets, and in theory, those Soviets were the basis on which government was to be based. Now, that's not how it worked out, but that was the idea. Or, if we were to look at a more anarchic organization, many anarcho-syndicalist structures eventually concede the need for some kind of decision-making council. Now, this is controversial among a lot of anarcho-syndicalists, but in that case, the members are to be obviously voted on, and they bring most of the big decisions before the community as a whole. They still vote, but day-to-day administration is handled by a council. That, more than a, you know, a workers' coalition, a Soviet, that strikes me as a strong similarity between pirates and anarchists. And when it comes to decisions or problems that might affect those beyond the commune, problems that might affect multiple communes, a council of councils is required. Sometimes, and this is even more problematic for a lot of anarchists, but sometimes that council of councils is called a commonwealth. Gabriel Kuhn devotes an entire chapter to this topic in his book, and oh boy do I love it, it's fascinating stuff. But he writes, quote, The versions of pirate articles that existed on different ships appeared so similar in essence that they indeed constituted a common golden age pirate culture, or in Frank Sherry's words, a commonwealth. Kuhn continues later on, quote, The term brotherhood has been used extensively to describe the strong sense of loyalty, solidarity, and community among buccaneers and pirates. The buccaneers have been called an autarkic brotherhood, or a brotherhood of sea sharks. The golden age pirates, an outlaw brotherhood. End quote. Now after the officers and the councils were elected, and after the code was agreed to, and after the pirates spent a couple of days toasting their accomplishment with heroic amounts of rum and wine and beer, the pirates had to get to work. Whenever pirates spotted a ship on the horizon, the very first order of business was to vote on whether or not to attack. If they voted aye, they attacked. After the big guns were done firing, if they had been needed in the first place, the pirates prepared to go over. When all was said and done, a pirate crew would have, hopefully, a big pile of plunder, but also supplies and a crew and a ship to decide what to do with. Again, most of this was voted on. Now, more often than not, the pirates agreed to release the crew. That's one of the unspoken rules of the Commonwealth. If you go around killing people willy-nilly, that's going to upset a lot of people, people in the civilized world with more ships and more guns who are going to use those against you. But then you have the plunder, and the plunder was divided into equal shares. They made allotments for certain officers, as we have seen, and for injuries. In the buccaneer era, an injured man was given either an extra portion or sometimes a slave. But by the time of Bartholomew Roberts, things had changed. 
Black Bart Roberts' pirate code reads, quote, If any man should lose a limb or become a cripple in their service, he was to have $800 out of the public stock, and for lesser hurts proportionally. End quote. $800 out of the public stock. That, my friends, is a social security program. $800 was a good amount of money in those days, enough to set yourself up with a place to live and food to eat at the very least. Any man or woman who was part of the crew, at least in Robert's case, anybody who was seriously injured, so injured that they could not continue on, they were to be provided for. They weren't left to starve and die, and they did so out of a public treasury. That is a socialist program. We have social security in nearly all capitalist countries, of course, but... Well, for example, when social security was instituted here in the U.S., there was a flood of accusations against FDR. People called him a red and a secret communist agent and all sorts of nonsense. They did the same thing when he instituted the 40-hour work week and the minimum wage. That is a socialist program on board a pirate ship, and... Honestly, it's very progressive for the time. You know, factories 100, 100, 200 years later did not have social security programs. Governments wouldn't come up with that until the 20th century. But then we come to the supplies and the guns and the ship. What do we do as pirates with those tools? In some cases, although far from all cases, but occasionally the pirates would seize those guns and ships by force. And they would use them as tools to provide an income for the pirates to enjoy. It looks kind of like Karl Marx's call to arms to seize the means of production. I've seen a lot of arguments that that was exactly what it was. That pirates were a a proto-socialist, revolutionary, anti-imperialist movement, and every time they attacked, you know, an East India Company ship, it was an anti-imperialist action. And I do see the similarities there, but I have to disagree. See, the means of production are, what did we say, the tools and the factories, the raw materials necessary for production? But production is not what pirates did. You know, if you're a socialist workers' collective and you seize the means of production, the belief is that you're going to start making, you know, steel or tanks or bullets or whatever you need to make society run. But pirates didn't build anything. They didn't produce anything. What they did, and what was honestly an anti-imperialist action, but they extracted the wealth from those imperial powers for their own use. And sure, those ships, those tools of trade were a means of production for the imperial powers themselves, but pirates turned that use on its head. More accurately, I would say that pirates seized the means of destruction. So, were pirates socialists? I don't... I don't think they were. There are similarities, some big similarities... The quest for a relative social equality among their ranks, that's a big one. But the goals between socialist revolutionaries of the 20th century and 
pirates of the late 17th and early 18th century, well, they're just not the same. And were pirates, and this is the big question, were they anarchists? First, we can't really know. You know, pirates, even when they occasionally wrote down their actions, they were writing down their actions. They weren't writing treatises on Enlightenment-era philosophy. There's not a single instance, at least not that I've run into, of a pirate saying, here's what I believe, aside from very occasionally naming something that they hate. And what they hated was often the government. They rejected their governments in almost all occasions, especially as we delve into the golden age of piracy. But also, on other occasions, take when Woods Rogers offered a pardon to all of the Nassau pirates, they embraced their government and the mercantilist, burgeoning capitalist world they created. And then, of course, there's the fact that pirates were a lot of different people. They didn't share a homogeneous ideology. There were pirates who I'm certain did believe in an ethno-state, and I'm sure there were pirates who believed in no state at all. You can't say that this is what pirates were because there were just so many of them. But if I were, gun to my head, forced to pin an ideology down that did define pirates and piracy as a whole, it would not be anarchy. It would be hydrarchy. We've talked about hydrarchy before, but it's going to become a much more important element in our story moving forward. And hydrarchy does share a lot of elements with later anarchist thinkers. But the traditions and beliefs of the hydrarchy, such as they were, well, they were based in naval traditions and maritime traditions. The pirates might not have believed in their government, and that their government had failed them so completely. But I don't think that we could say pirates believed in the absence of a state as a, an ideal towards which to work. They were, of course, hostis humani generis, enemies of the whole human race. And that means they had no nation, but when a pirate was asked from whence they were come, they had an answer. Pirates were from the sea. If the question of what pirates believed could even be answered, we're not going to answer it today. It's going to be a subject, though, that I do want you to keep an open mind to. We're going to return to this subject occasionally moving forward, whenever it becomes relevant to our overall story. Again, if this is a topic that intrigues you, I really can't recommend Life Under the Jolly Roger enough. It is a fascinating read, and it raises a lot of questions and points that I don't see raised many other places. Next time, though, we're going to return to our story. We're going to talk New England, King William's War, and the privateers that were empowered by the brief tenure of a German governor. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, 
thank you for listening. Tonight